You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Introducing Royal Caribbean's newest ship, Icon of the Seas, the ultimate family vacation. The ultimate six slides, eight neighborhoods, zero compromise vacation. The ultimate never done that, can't wait to do it vacation. The ultimate chillin' by a different pool every day of the week vacation. This is the Icon of Vacations, Icon of the Seas, arriving in 2024. Book today. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Well, there it is. Holy criminy, I mean, tool sheds aren't really known as paragons of organization, but this is impressive. Yeah, well, uh, this thing came with a house, Gary, and there were already a bunch of tools and stuff in it. And I just don't seem to have gotten around to cleaning it out or building shelves or... You know, Seth, I think there are more dusty pots in here than there are in a museum in Athens. And these pots might be older. Are you sure there's a weed whacker in here? Scout's honor. It's in here all right. I'm just not sure where. Might be behind those bags of mulch. Maybe the wood chips somewhere in there. Well, I figured borrowing yours would be cheaper than buying one. All these tools and stuff, just to deal with plants. Not just plants, Gary. I mean, I'm well stocked on animal control supplies, you know. Snail bait, aphid repellent. Life. I don't know. Some people think biology is the most wondrous thing in the universe. But here in Seth's tool shed, I get the feeling that life is an out-of-control menace. I'm Gary Niederhoff. And I'm Seth Shostak. Molly Bentley is on travel. Well, while Gary and I dig around here in search of that weed whacker... We'll be considering how life can adapt to changing environments, including environments on planets that are not our own. We'll also talk about an experiment that could find our relatives on Mars. It's Seth's tool shed on big picture science. What the? Is this some sort of lattice for holding up tomato plants, Seth? Well, yeah. I mean, I figure with a bit more global warming, I'll be able to grow hothouse tomatoes here in the backyard in winter. And if not, maybe I'll just switch my vegetable garden over to cassava or plantains or maybe grapefruit. Isn't that kind of a cavalier attitude? I mean, shouldn't you be worrying about how to stop climate change rather than how to perk up a salad? Well, since global warming is going to happen anyhow, Gary, I figured I'd try to match my lifestyle to the inevitable. In fact, I'm not the only one trying to be practical about this. I recently spoke to Phil Duffy, who's a physicist and senior scientist at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory, and he's been giving a lot of thought to the consequences of climate change. There's no doubt that it's happening. There's no doubt that it's going to get worse. Where there is doubt is really what will the practical ramifications mean and how bad will it be. There has traditionally been a lot of uh, opposition to the claim that we are influencing the climate. Now, yeah. you didn't say anything about that, but I assume that you believe this is uh, anthropogenic, that we are doing it, that we are changing the planet. We are changing the planet. Most of the climate change that's been experienced over the last 50 years has been quite rigorously attributed to humans. In other words, for the last 50 years, most of the climate change has been actually caused by humans. One thing I do notice, other than the fact that the weather patterns do seem, you know, just very subjectively yeah. to be different now. More right. storms, yeah. more hot weather. Yeah. You know, Texas has uh, 20 days in a row where it's over 100 and that kind yeah. of thing. But, you know, that's almost anecdotal. What about world temperatures, global average yeah. temperatures? Aren't they a yeah. good measure of whether the climate's changing? Yeah, they are a good measure of whether the climate's changing. And global average temperatures have been rising well, really, since about 1970, global temperatures really started to take off. And we also do see changes in how often extremely hot temperatures are occurring. For example, in the United States right now, well, in the last 10 years in the United States, we see about twice as many high-temperature records as low-temperature records. Okay, 50 years ago, that was not the case. 50 years ago, we saw about the same number of high-temperature records as low-temperature records. Now, the same number of high and low records is what you expect if the climate is basically not changing. But we don't see that anymore. We see a lot more high records. Your job, you're a climate scientist. Uh, you, you 
you know how to model these things in a theoretical way is to look into the future and see yeah. what's coming down the pike. Yeah. When we say look into the future, what kind of future are we talking about? Are we talking five years, 50 years, 500 years? Climate projections typically go out to the year 2100. A few of them go beyond that. We generally take the attitude there's not much point in looking beyond 2100. What happens if you look very far in the future is the what you see in terms of future climate really does depend on assumptions about human greenhouse gas emissions. And those basically, although they're, they're very sophisticated, they're basically guesses. So climate projections typically go out to 2100. But I should say that a lot of folks who are making practical decisions about infrastructure and so on don't want to look that far in the future. They may want to look 30 to 50 years in the future. All right. Well, let's do that. Let's yeah. consider 2040. Yeah. I mean, you know, a lot of us are going to be alive in 2040. Describe what life might be like in a yeah. place like New York City or, or the continent of Europe in 2040 yeah. If, yeah. if things aren't yeah. uh, modified. Well, what you can expect is generally warmer weather. And the thing about that is that may not sound like a big deal. I mean, if I tell you, oh, the globally average temperature may increase one, two, three degrees... That doesn't sound like a big deal. And this is one of the things that makes climate change hard to visualize or imagine is that historically, over the last 100 years, the global average temperature has increased about one degree. And that sounds like nothing because it can easily be, you know, five degrees warmer today than yesterday. And, and, you know, just night and day are different by a lot more than that. And so what's the big deal? The big deal is that really does translate into things like more extreme weather which a lot of folks are already experiencing. It does translate into things like reductions in crop yields, increased water scarcity, more wildfire in certain regions, and so on. So these changes that sound relatively small actually have, can have surprising impacts, and some of those are being seen right now. Well, it seems that to deal with this, I mean, there are three approaches that come to mind. One is to forestall further climate change. Right. Second would be to somehow accommodate it and just say yep. it's going to happen. We all move yep. to northern Canada or whatever. Or, or third, to mitigate it by, yep. you know, putting big sunscreens up yep. in space or something like that. Yep. I don't know, geoengineering. Yep. Let's, let's consider some of those. I mean, a few years ago, I heard NASA scientist Jim Hansen, who was in the papers for quite a while there, about, uh, you know, reporting on climate change to the government. And he said, you know, we've got to stop burning coal yesterday, essentially. I mean, mm -hmm. I don't see that happening. No. Uh, is it going to happen? Are we going to do anything significant in terms of fuel use? I wish I had the crystal ball. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. My job is to say, well, if we do this, then this is, these are the likely consequences. If we do that, then those are the likely consequences. I will say that a certain amount of climate change is inevitable because of the physics of the system. In other words, if we stopped emitting greenhouse gases now, we would still see continued climate change, meaning continued warming and especially continued sea level rise for quite a long time. If we stopped emitting greenhouse gases now, carbon dioxide concentrations would go down, but very, very slowly. So even adopting the unrealistic assumption that we just simply stop emitting greenhouse gases instantly, we are committed to a significant amount of additional climate change. And of course, the more we emit, the more additional climate change we're committed to. Well, all right, so climate change is going to continue to happen no matter what our behavior. And for how long it happens depends on how good our behavior is in, in some sense. So what about accommodation? Yep. Uh, yep. You know, what, what can we do to... Yeah, accommodation is important. In the business, we call that adaptation. Uh, another word for it might be coping. And one of the interesting things that's happened is, and again, really over the last five or ten years, is we see a lot of what we call stakeholders, that is people who could be influenced or are being influenced by climate change, are starting to prepare and make plans and actually make changes to accommodate climate change. And this happens, and it always happens, on a grassroots level, okay? So, for example, I know that the San Francisco Water Department is worried about how is climate change going to affect both their water supply and their water quality. And so they're starting to look at that and they're starting to make sure that they have the infrastructure and so on that they need to provide a good water supply looking forward. So a lot of people who have money at stake are acting on the basis of climate change is here, climate change is going to get worse, and we're going to get ready for it. Yeah. So if you're personally affected, if your business is personally it, affected, you will take steps. Exactly. Well, finally, Phil, um, rather curious whether you dare to tell people what you do for a living at, you know, 
parties or whatever, yeah. <laughs> or if you're yeah. sitting on the plane, the guy yeah. next to you says, well, yeah. what do you do for a living? Yeah. Uh, but if you do, do they, they, do they find what you're doing? Do they find that uh, an upbeat story or uh, a bummer? Well, everybody's interested in it. A lot of folks want to know, say, hey, tell me the truth. Is it really happening? And I always say, well, yeah, it's really happening. I hate to say it, but I do think a lot of people find it a bummer. I actually, in, in some ways, do not. I mean, I'm, I'm personally optimistic in the sense that I really see that climate change is sort of a nudge to get us to do what I think we should do anyway, which is to move away from 19th century technology for generating energy and, and develop some better approaches. And what tends to get lost in the discussion is the, the other problems associated with fossil fuel use. By other, I mean the non-climate change problems. I mean, you mentioned coal. Coal has tremendous environmental impacts and human health impacts completely independent of any climate change impacts. And, of course, the other issue with fossil fuels is the long-term supply is, is really finite, although what actually what tends to happen is it just gets more and more and more expensive and, and the demand goes up, the supply goes down. So that basic tendency is not going to go away. Personally, my opinion is developing new and cleaner and, and more modern energy sources is something we need to do anyway. And climate change absolutely provides more urgency for that, but it is something that we should do anyway, and I think we can all be better off. Phil Duffy, thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you. Phil Duffy is a physicist and senior scientist at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. And what the heck is this under this 50-pound bag of sand? Looks like a, an inflatable Luke Skywalker, except that it's not inflated. Hey, don't tell me you're not a Star Wars fan, Gary. Okay, I won't tell you that. But this guy's come a long way from walking that desert world of Tatooine. I mean, the force isn't exactly with him right now. He's flatter than a steamrolled crepe. Wasn't Tatooine that planet with the double suns? Yep, maybe that explains why it was so dry. I mean, it looked like the Gobi Desert, the whole planet. Sand dunes everywhere. Kind of like the planet in Dune. Remember that one? Oh, yeah, Arrakis. Makes you wonder if there's any credence to these fictional desert planets. I mean, could they actually be habitable like they are in the movies? Well, as it turns out, I actually asked NASA astrobiologist Kevin Zanley about that. It's a vivid reconstruction of a different kind of habitable planet. Wait, you say habitable planet. To begin with, I mean, are there going to be planets out there, you think, that uh, would resemble at least the landscape on Dune? I think very much so. I think... uh, Water is something that we know can, a planet can lose. They lose it because water is made of hydrogen and oxygen, and hydrogen is very light and will float off to space. Mars has not too much water, probably has had a lot of escape. Venus has very little water at all because of escape to space. Earth is just right because it's both big enough to hold on to its water and, and cool enough to keep it condensed. So to begin with, there could be dune-like planets in the sense you could have desert plants. You could have planets that if you landed at most places on that planet, you would just see the Sahara, if you will, endless. Yeah. Uninhabitable. Un- most, most of the planet would be uninhabitable. The equator would be not a place fit for, for human life or even any life. Okay. But they could have water somewhere on the planet. Yeah. And that would be? At the poles. At the poles. The idea is that such a planet can be closer to its star than an ocean planet. Because with an ocean planet, you try to get too close to the star or the star gets too bright as it evolves, the water evaporates and forms a steam atmosphere that basically cooks you. A desert planet, you can move it closer to the star and all that happens is the sunlight that is heating the desert gets radiated back to space as heat from the desert, from the equator. The poles can stay relatively cool, and the water that is at the poles can stay down as lakes or or ice caps or whatnot, and you can live there. So such a planet would remain habitable even when it's closer to the sun than Venus. What about a desert planet that was farther from the sun than Earth is, for example? Could that be habitable? Yeah, they work better than Earth would because if you take Earth— with its global oceans and you go away from the sun, at some point the oceans freeze over and now you have an ice ball. And although it's not uninhabitable, it's not exactly habitable either. It's kind of like Europa. You don't know and you will never be able to know unless you can go through the ice with a submarine. But if you don't have a lot of water, 
there's not enough water to cover the whole surface with ice. So the equator remains dark, unicy, and the planet remains habitable as you go further from the sun. So you, you have a, a much wider habitable zone with your dry planet, provided you have some water. So it could be that if one were to say, what is the typical inhabited world in this universe, it's going to be one of these desert worlds because they can take a wider range of uh, orbits than the kind of planets like the Earth that, that we typically think of when we think of inhabited worlds. Yeah, that's a good idea. It's credible. One doesn't have at this point, we have very few statistics on how wet planets like Earth are. In fact, we've got two examples of planets like Earth, and one is Venus and one is Earth. We don't know more at this point. But one could imagine that dry planets are, are more common, and they do have bigger habitable zones. So why not? Well, what about a desert planet that had no water? Is that it completely uninhabitable? There's no water at all. It's uninhabitable by the current definition of habitable because the current definition of habitable is having liquid water present at the surface. That's what people have been using as an operative definition of a habitable planet. It's our perspective of things is that we're most familiar with the world we're familiar with, and we would assume life would be familiar to us. So these desert planets are relatively extreme for life that would be familiar to us. We would describe them as habitable in the same sense as Earth. You could imagine other kinds of life entirely than the life on Earth, but I don't want to go there. <laughs> you, you, this show, I believe, will have people that will go there for you. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to go there. It would be a tough life if you ah, did go there. I, I couldn't live there, could I? would <laughs> no. be dead, wouldn't I? See, what good is that? <laughs> well, well, let's follow up on that point finally because the sun, after all, is uh, as it ages, it's uh, heating up. And every day the sun's a little bit brighter than it was the day before. Not, not terribly much, but it's uh, relentless. And eventually, it's possible, is it not, that maybe the Earth will become more like a desert planet? That's a good question. We have the example, again, in our own solar system of Venus. How did it get to be what it is now? Many people think, beginning with Ingersoll in the 60s, that Venus was once much more Earth-like, resembling Earth, with oceans of liquid water, and that it lost them all. And it made the transition into what is basically hell. Hell on Venus rather than hell on Earth, but still hell. But very similar to Earth in other respects. What was that transition like? And you could imagine that as the hydrogen escapes and you still have an ocean, you would just make a, this, a transition, a seamless, continuous transition from a world that had liquid water to a world where there's only liquid water at the poles and the whole equator became a desert, and yet still be habitable. You could imagine that Venus had done this, and you can imagine that Earth will do this. If Earth does do this, Earth will stay habitable for two billion years longer than it would otherwise. This is actually good news for us, isn't I it? I think so. <laughs> I think we could have four to five billion years of habitable Earth in the future if we just make this transitions effectively. If we avoid going through... A catastrophe, which can happen if you turn your atmosphere to steam. You may just melt your surface, in which case habitable is out of the question again. No more liquid water on the surface if your surface is molten rock. But, but there is some opportunity here to beat the long-term wrap of a... Uh, well, the... not forever. As you mentioned, the sun is relentless. The fusion of hydrogen to helium keeps going, and eventually the sun will become too bright. No matter what you do, you will have to move the Earth. Nonetheless, I find the opportunity of a couple of extra billion years heartening. It is. <laughs> yes. I think I'm going to invest in some polar real estate. Kevin Zanley, thank you for talking to me. You're welcome. Kevin Zanley is a planetary scientist at the NASA Ames Research Center. Dune may be merely a fictional representation of a dry, habitable planet, but there's a real dry world that might harbor life, namely Mars. And if Martians really exist, could they be our relatives? We'll find out later on Big Picture Science. Why are the teeth on this rake all bent up? No, I was using it to battle giant sandworms.
This episode is presented by Chemists in the Kitchen by LabX, a YouTube video series spotlighting the power of chemistry and how science and food can bring people together. In each episode, real scientists walk you through things like making your own cheese at home, the chemistry behind souffles, methods for botanical infusions, the formula for perfect deep-fried chicken, and much more. It's a love letter to science, cooking, and individuality, with some great tips on how you can apply real scientific principles to your everyday cooking. Plus, it's just a lot of fun. Season 3 is airing right now, and you can catch up with every episode for free on YouTube by searching Chemists in the Kitchen or going to youtube.com slash labxnas. That's youtube.com slash labxnas. So we're pawing around among the tools in the plant fertilizer, looking for my weed whacker. I think it might have been simpler to find the holy grail. Whoa, look at all these packets of seeds. Watermelon, spring turnip, cauliflower, cheddar hybrid, blue satin hibiscus. It's a Noah's Ark of plants. Yeah, well, haven't gotten around to putting those in the ground yet. I'll say. The picture on this packet of corn seeds looks like something the Aztecs were growing. All variations on a theme, Gary. What's that mean? Well... All those seeds are related to one another. I mean, they're also related to every other living thing, including us. You mean in the same way that all humans would be related to Adam, if there was such a guy? That there's some sort of uber-Adam who's the ancestor to all living species? Well, I asked that very question of Dave Summers, an astrobiologist with the SETI Institute. Yes, everything we know points to that. In fact, you can trace it back to two kinds of ancestors. There's the last universal ancestor, which is the one that branched out to all life, and then there's the first universal ancestor, which is the first organism. What's the difference there? It has to do with the fact that the very first organism may have spread into different organisms, but if they all died out down to one that was the seed for the rest of life, that's the last universal ancestor. And that's important because when you trace your tree of life back, that's what it goes to. Okay, so it goes to something back there that might actually not have been the first cell that was ever alive. It just was the only one that survived some sort of catastrophe. In fact, it probably wasn't the very first life, yes. Okay, uh, so how far back uh, does this go? I mean, we're not talking about a million years here. We're not talking about a billion years here. Life on Earth is ancient. The consensus is that Earth has been habitable for about four billion years-ish. And life goes back three and a half of those four billion years. So, in fact, life does go back almost all the beginning, which is one reason for the current optimism for the life being able to start up quickly. I see. So the Earth gets born four and a half billion years ago. And for the first billion years, there wasn't any life? Or do we just not know that? For the first 500 million years or half billion years, it's considered uninhabitable because of, among other things, Meteors and stuff just smacking the surface, molten lava surfaces, really extreme stuff like that. The evidence for life on Earth starts around three and a half billion years ago-ish. So that's a 500 million year window. And you can actually come up with arguments that's actually narrower than that. So of all the long history of life, life started up pretty soon after it was possible. So here's the chronology. The Earth gets born. A half billion years later, it's habitable. Yeah. You know, the, 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 the rain of rocks from the sky, like you see in all those sci-fi films, that finally stops. And now you could have life. And then very soon after that, you do have life. Yes, exactly. But this is one reason that uh, there's a certain amount of optimism for uh, life on Mars. Because during this key period, when life started on Earth, Mars is thought to have looked a fair bit like the Earth. Similar atmosphere, liquid water on the surface, that sort of thing. And it comes down to the question is, if life didn't start up on Mars, why not? Getting back to the Earth for a moment here, life started early. Where did it spring up? I mean, Charles Darwin said some warm little pond, which sounds kind of naive, but on the other hand, he's assuming it was in water and sounded like hot water was preferred. That's a good question that people would really like to know the answer to. Um, there are theories. One possibility is the hydrothermal vents. These are vents at the bottom of the ocean. Bottom of the ocean, though they may have been shallower then because oceans were thought to have been shallower. One reason that's attractive is because it does a lot of interesting chemistry, the same chemistry or similar chemistry that, to that which gives rise to all the life you see in all the little pictures of worms around the vents and the, and the nature shows. Give me the scenario. How does a hydrothermal vent cook up life? One reason that hydrothermal vents are interesting for the origin of life and this is coming from my viewpoint, there are various reasons from various viewpoints, is that it can make compounds 
that would be suitable for the origin of life from the CO2 that's thought to have existed in the early atmosphere. CO2 itself is not that useful, but all the chemistry at the rocks and minerals and all the heating can, might be able to do interesting stuff. So at a hydrothermal vent, you just have more chemistry going on only because it's hot? It's hot, and the rocks have iron and other interesting species which can interact with the organic things, organic molecules, or the CO2 to make the organic molecules. And it's, again, hot because it's on the temperatures that are at which uh, things can be pushed further. And people have speculated on that. There's a lot of research going into that these days. Some people have said that just random chemistry in a hydrothermal vent or on anywhere else is very, very unlikely ever to produce a molecule that can reproduce itself, the beginnings of life. Fred Hoyle famously said it was like a tornado whipping through a junkyard and assembling a 747 aircraft. What do you say to that? Maybe this is all a miracle here. Well, in fact, that's another question that we really don't know the answer to is how much of the origin of life depend on one low probability event? Now, again, the speed at which life appears to have originated argues against that because it didn't seem to take too long. But, I mean, that's not proof. That's just a probability argument. There are some theories that origin life, such as evolving RNA and DNA, which could very well require some special molecule. And there are other theories that origin life, such as the use of vesicles, which are little water-filled soap bubbles, to be a little too simplistic, which don't really require anything like that and provide an alternative view. So, you know, this is an area that we need to know more about. I'm talking with astrobiologist Dave Summers, who's a researcher here at the Carl Sagan Center of the SETI Institute. You mentioned the possibility of life on Mars since uh, Mars and the Earth were similar in their early days. We haven't found any life on Mars. No, we haven't. And in fact, I, when I talk about life on Mars, I'm really talking about past life. Though if life exists on Mars, it's generally thought to probably exist deep down in the crust where we can't get to. But most, I think, of what Mars exploration is aimed towards is evidence for past life. And the fact that we haven't found that yet is, is actually to be expected because one thing Viking, I believe, told us was that if we're going to do this, we need some context of Mars. For instance, follow the water. We need to know where there's water to look for the right places. But suppose you had unlimited dollars to search for life on Mars. How would you do it? Would you look around the surface or would you, you know, just send a drilling rig to Mars and look underneath the surface? Current life or past life? Mm, just some indication that Mars ever had life. I'd pull up as many sedimentary materials as I could of known sedimentary origin. Probably three and a half billion years or so old and ship them all back to Earth, make thin sections, look in with the microscope. What do you estimate the chances that you'd find anything? Okay, this is gross speculation with no scientific basis whatsoever. This is a personal opinion. Okay. I give the odds of past life on Mars a 50-50 chance <laughs> because really there's no evidence really to weigh it either way. So that comes down to 50-50. Um, I give the chance of life on Mars now, again, gross speculation, you know, a few percent maybe or something like that. It's, it's possible, but it's speculative. Dave Summers, thanks so much for being with us today. I enjoyed it. David Summers is an astrobiologist with the SETI Institute. I'll tell you, Seth, I've got one of those programs that lets you trace your family tree. Yeah? Well, learning that my tree goes back almost four billion years, I don't think I'm going to bother trying to set it up. Everybody's a relative, including the spiders up here. Ow, hey! Hey, careful, Gary. That's uh, my 32-inch bypass lopper. Good thing you keep it hanging precariously from this hook up here. You know, as amazing as it is to think that every living thing on this planet is related to every other living thing, some scientists have suggested that we might even have relatives on other planets. You're not talking about breeding experiments with aliens, are you? Yeah, not quite and not yet. But you see, when the solar system was younger, much younger, about four billion years ago, Mars might have been a much kinder, gentler world, a planet that could spawn life. Mars' salad days are behind it, huh? Yeah, but what was also true back then was that there were a lot of rocks, asteroids and smaller things, flying around the solar system. And when they slammed into planets, they would inevitably kick up some of the surface rock and fling it into space. Now, most of that would just fall right back down, of course, but some would escape from the planet. Yeah, and maybe land on a different planet, and it's possible that one of those rocks contained biological hitchhikers, the panspermia theory. You mean that DNA-based life might have started on Mars and then infected Earth? Making us descendants of native Martians. Sounds kind of out there. Well, maybe, but it's not so far out there that it couldn't make its way here. I mean, there's a researcher at MIT, Chris Carr, 
who thinks this idea is plausible enough that we ought to fly an experiment to the red planet to look for long-lost relatives. Chris, S-E-T-G. What, what is that? What does that acronym stand for? It stands for the Search for Extraterrestrial Genomes. The person who started this project, Gary Ruvkin, really liked the sound of SETI, and so he came up with SETG. So you're looking for extraterrestrial genomes. Uh, are you doing this by physically looking for them, you know, grabbing some dirt and looking at it under a microscope? How do you do it? We do need to grab some dirt, but once we have that dirt, the idea is to actually sequence the DNA itself. What we're looking for is only nucleic acids. So the field of astrobiology has been largely concerned with looking for life beyond Earth, but doing it in a way that's not Earth-centric. And our approach is, given the potential for life on Mars to be related to life on Earth, that we should take an Earth-centric approach and look for RNA or DNA. So the idea here is that you're looking for extraterrestrial life, but in a particular place. You're looking for life on Mars, and by implication, life that might share DNA with us in the sense that it has DNA. That's right. And to explain why that might be the case, I've got to tell you a little story about the history of the solar system. When the solar system was forming, around 4 billion years ago, Jupiter migrated inward. And that inward migration caused some of the other planetesimals in the system, chunks of rock orbiting the sun, to veer off course. And it created a lot of bombardment. It turns out that these impacts were so large, they could actually knock material off one planet and have it end up on another. So about a billion tons of rock has probably gone between Earth and Mars, mostly in this early period between three and a half to four billion years ago. And if life was around at that time on one of those planets, it could have hitched a ride to the other planet. So you're saying that Mars might have infected the Earth or Earth might have infected Mars. Consequently, if there's life on both planets, they may be related at the, level of, uh, at the level of DNA. That's right. So the way I say it is, if life on Mars exists, then it's possible it's related to life on Earth. So your proposal is to look for these nucleic acids on Mars. This presumes that you're going to be able to get an experiment on board some sort of spacecraft, get it to Mars, and have it look. Is it going to be looking at the dirt on the surface, or will it dig down a little bit? What sample would you want for your experiment? We're currently funded by NASA to develop our instrument, SET-G, and we're in the early stages of that development. So we're not on a, any particular mission yet. The hope would be to be on a mission like the Mars Science Lab that's going to launch this fall, where there's maybe a half a dozen different instruments. There's a common way for the rover to acquire samples, and then it provides a sample to these different instruments. So we wouldn't say, drill into the surface ourselves, but another device could do that for us. Well, surely you're encouraged in this by the recent results suggesting that there might be liquid water uh, just below the surface of Mars, that you don't need a drill that goes down, you know, 100 meters or anything. You, you might find some evidence for life right below the surface, or do you care whether this life is dead or alive? Well, we do care in that because we're looking for DNA or RNA, we're not looking for life that might have been there a billion years ago or even tens of millions of years ago. Scientists study ancient DNA here on Earth, and the oldest DNA they found that's been independently verified is on the order of a million years old. So we'd be looking for life on Mars that's either alive or recently dead. All right, freshly dead, as they say in the movies. How, how does this set G then actually work? I mean, you, you get this sample... You're looking for nucleic acids. Uh, do you just sift through it and actually sequence molecules that you find in the dirt? That's the idea, but it's a bit more complicated. The first thing we have to do is extract the nucleic acids or the DNA that's inside the soil. So there's some different ways to do that, but the main way involves mechanically disrupting the soil using sonication as one tool or using some beads that can just physically disrupt cells in the soil to break them open and let the DNA come out. Once we've extracted DNA from soil, we need to get it ready for sequencing. Let me just remind you that DNA is, forms this double helix and the bases, the A's, the C's, the G's, and T's in one of the strands uh, are complementary. That is, the A's bind with T's and the C's bind with G's. And so 
what that allows you to do is take a single strand of that double helix, attach it to a surface, and then build the second strand by flowing the different DNA bases by. And as you build it, you can measure whether one of those bases adds itself to the DNA molecule, and in building the DNA molecule, you get the sequence. We'll return to Seth's conversation with Chris Carr in a moment, which might give me enough time to move these piles of mulch out of the way. It's Seth's Toolshed on Big Picture Science. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. We return to Chris Carr, an MIT researcher who's been telling Seth about SET-G, an experiment that's designed to find DNA-based life on Mars. Well, I have to say, although the technology of DNA sequencing seems to be moving very rapidly, you know, I, I think of the equipment required to sequence, for example, my genome as filling a room, and it probably doesn't anymore. But nonetheless, to whatever it is, to shoot it to Mars, I mean, do you actually care what the sequence is, or are you only trying to recognize that, doggone it, this is really DNA? Well, even recognizing that this is DNA would be a big deal. However, there's always the potential for contamination. NASA has a whole focus called planetary protection, where it tries to limit the extent to which we bring Earth organisms to other worlds and potentially bring other organisms back. So if for our experiment, forward contamination is an important issue. We don't want to go to Mars and just find DNA and then conclude, well, it could be from Earth or it could be Martian. So we actually do care about the sequence. And the idea here is that Earth and Mars have been separated for a very long time. We still get Martian meteorites today, but we get so few that there's very little communication between Earth and Mars today. As a result, if there's life there, that life has been isolated from life on Earth for billions of years. So it may be related to us, but it's also going to have quite different sequences than we find here on Earth. The idea is find the sequence and compare it to what we have here on Earth show that it's similar, but also different. Boy, I can't wait for you to do that, because then you could grow Martians in the lab. That would, that would be, that'd be astounding. I have to say that, you know, 10, 15 years ago, I attended a talk by a British researcher, uh, a woman who was suggesting that the way to look for life on Mars was to build an instrument that could search for what's called homochirality, which is, you know, the left-handed or right-handed uh, nature of the molecules, because on Earth, all life is, you know, left-handed, whatever. And she called her experiment S-E-T-H, which I have to say, well, I have to say that really appealed to me, <laughs> the <laughs> Seth experiment. For obvious reasons. Yes. But, I mean, but that sounded like it might find life that actually wasn't related to Earth. And so, you know, the question is, there, there's some chance that there's life on Mars, but your experiment might not find it because it actually isn't related to us. Does that worry you? Well, it doesn't keep me up at night. There are a number of other approaches that one could take to look for life, and one of them is looking for as you mentioned, homochirality. Uh, another is just looking for organics and trying to understand the source of those organics, whether it's likely to be a living creature or if it could be just from a meteorite. We know, for example, that meteorites and comets contain organics. And so the general problem with these other approaches are that they're not specific. So the good part about DNA and getting a sequence is that we can actually look at what is that sequence. And our hypothesis is that it would be related to sequences on Earth, but also different. And so we'll be able to tease out, is this likely to be contamination or is it likely to be Martian? Is there any sense to doing this experiment on places other than Mars, some of the moons of Jupiter or Saturn, which are thought to possibly be habitable? We've been talking mainly about looking for life on Mars related to life on Earth. But if biochemistry is more universal than just our two planets, we could potentially look for life elsewhere. Recently, it's been discovered that there may be liquid water oceans under a surface of ice on Enceladus and Europa. And we've also heard about finding some of the DNA bases in meteorites, along with other bases that are not used by biology. So meteorites have delivered some of the basic ingredients of life, amino acids, and the bases of DNA 
to Mars and to Earth and to other worlds. And so if that's pushed life in the direction of a, a universal biochemistry, we could potentially use SETG to look for life in other places beyond Mars. Well, finally, Chris, uh, what's the time horizon here? When do you expect this, this hardware to be on its way to Mars? My dream would be for us to be on a mission. There's a 2018 mission that's planned, and that would be a really good one for us in the sense that it has a drill. It can access the subsurface. And it's designed to be the first mission in a series of missions that will culminate in bringing samples back to Earth. Now, I would think our instrument might be a great candidate in the sense that if we identify a sequence, there's going to be a lot of interest in bringing those samples back. This is fantastic. The idea of relatives on Mars. Chris Carr, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. Christopher Carr is a research scientist at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. You know, it's a pretty startling idea, Gary. I mean, the fact that all the flora and fauna of Earth might have begun with some single-celled hitchhikers from the Red Planet four billion years ago. Well, they've sure diversified. Look at all this stuff here, all these tools, the fertilizer, the pots, the herbicides, pest control products. Yeah, it's kind of odd, isn't it? I mean, this whole shed is filled with stuff that's designed to encourage some life and discourage other life. I mean, some life's good, other life's bad. But of course, if you're a weed, you probably figure you've got the right to live, too. Well, that's where they're wrong. And speaking of offing weeds, what's that thing over there in the corner dressed in cobwebs? What? Where? Is, is that what I think it is? Is it? Is it a weed whacker? Found it at last. Mark Showalter. Hey, Seth. Sorry to intrude, but I was wondering if I could borrow that weed whacker. I just about need a machete to get around my garden these days. Wait a minute. I'm here to get that whacker. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Hold on, guys. Gosh, I never thought that thing would be in such demand. Well, how are you going to decide who gets to borrow it first? Well, I don't know. I, coin toss? I, well, I know. Tell me something interesting you found recently. And whoever has the most impressive story gets the whacker for the weekend. Well, that sounds kind of contrived, but lucky for me, I made a pretty amazing discovery, so that weed whacker is as good as mine. And what was that discovery? Well, digging around at my dad's house, I found my grandfather's old ebonite bowling ball. And you, Mark, you find anything interesting recently? Well, I did find a new moon of Pluto. Does that trump a bowling ball? That's right. It's number four for Pluto. Uh, we don't have a name for it yet, so we're just calling it P4 for now. My goodness. Well, how did you find this? I mean, there is a space mission en route to Pluto, but that's not responsible for this discovery. No, it's not. Uh, but in fact, we were doing some of these observations on behalf of the New Horizons mission. We were looking, in fact, for small, faint rings that might be circling the dwarf planet Pluto. It's very common for small rings to be in the orbits of the satellites, and there are a couple of known satellites called Nix and Hydra orbiting Pluto, and so we were looking in that vicinity using the Hubble telescope, and we didn't find any rings, but we did find this little dot moving around that turns out to be P4. Well, uh, tell, tell me how that works. You're making photos of Pluto, presumably not just one, because if you saw one dot, you wouldn't know whether it was a moon or Pluto or just some distant star, right? That's right. That's right. We actually had two sets of observations just for the rings. So when we got our first observations, which was back on the 28th of June, we already saw something that looked very, very suspicious, but it doesn't move very much in our first set of observations. So we knew we had to wait for the second, and they came in on July 5th. And when we saw it a second time and we noticed that this dot was still there, that it had moved just about the right amount to be orbiting Pluto, we were pretty sure we had something real then. But uh, actually, the Space Telescope Institute cooperated with us very closely, and they gave us one more opportunity then a few weeks later to confirm it. And it was then in later July that the discovery was announced. So this sounds just the way uh, Galileo discovered moons around <laughs> Jupiter. He went out every couple of nights and, you know, saw the dots moving around the planet. Uh, I guess so, except, uh, of course, he had to invent his astronomical telescope, and I got to use one that's uh, a little bit more powerful. <laughs> okay. Now, tell me something about this moon. If I were to get up close and personal with P4, how interesting <laughs> would it be? What would I see? Well, it's not very big. That's, I think, the first thing you would probably notice about it. It's um, maybe 10 miles across. It's a little bit hard to say because that depends a bit on how bright the surface is, and we don't really know. But it's a very small object, and already just the mere fact that we're seeing it from, oh, something like 3 billion miles, 5 billion kilometers away, kind of amazing to us. I still can't get over the fact that we could even see this thing at all. 
But as it is, it's probably, uh, you know, a little irregular shaped rock. It's got some craters on it, that kind of thing. It's smaller than greater Los Angeles. That's right. That's right. You're seeing it in the outer regions of the solar system, or at least what used to be called the outer regions of the solar system. Right. Now, let me just add, the thing about it that may be most interesting isn't so much what it looks like, but where it is, because it's in a very, very interesting kind of a dynamical hole in the middle of the Pluto system. There is a big satellite, Charon, that goes around every six and a half days or so. And then there are these two little satellites called Nix and Hydra. And it's been known for some time that they are in a special relationship with Charon, where the inner one, Nix, goes around four times. I'm sorry, goes around one time every time Charon rotates four times. It's called a four-to-one resonance. And the outer one is called Hydra. That goes around once every time Charon rotates six times. This falls in between them, and you guessed it, it's going around five once every time Charon rotates five times. That's not magic, of course. This is something that happens to moons given enough time. They, that's right. They pull on one another and that, arrange for these resonances. That's right. In fact, we uh, suspect even more strongly than before that this whole system formed in some kind of a big splash of material when something impacted Pluto billions of years ago, and it left behind one very large object, Charon, and then these other objects are kind of coalesced out of the debris that was surrounding the whole system. Well, a collision with some big rock, I mean, that sounds like the scenario that seems to be favored for why we have a moon here on Earth, right? Exactly. But we don't have a bunch of small ones. We just had the one big one. Could be that we lost them all. I mean, our moon is actually quite a bit further away relative to the planet than in the case of Pluto and Charon. They're almost a binary planet is one term for it. And uh, the moon has been moving away from the Earth very slowly over the years. And uh, we suspect that maybe if there had been something else in orbit around the Earth, the moon kind of came on by and ate it up, and it's gone now. <laughs> I see. We, we lost our small moons. Well, Could be. I, you know, Mark, I once totaled up the total number of moons in our solar system, at least the ones that were you know, listed in some book I had at home. And I forget what the number was, but it was like 160-some moons, right, total. So now we have another one. Uh, what do we learn that's exciting from finding these new moons? Well, I think every one has its own story to tell. For example, in this case, we're learning a whole lot more about the history of the Pluto system. And as I said, this one's the hole that fills in a gap. It just basically makes a story that we kind of suspected was already true, but now we really can't get around it. It's got to be uh, some kind of a system that formed in the big breakup and collision of uh, something hitting Pluto. The, the big splat. The big it? splat, <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, you mentioned the New Horizons mission, and this is a spacecraft that is en route to Pluto. I have to note that it was launched before Pluto got demoted. I, I, I sort of wonder whether that would have made any difference, whether they would have decided, well, it's not a planet anymore. We won't waste the rocket fuel. But I suppose we would have gone there anyway. Is it possible to get this New Horizons spacecraft when it arrives in the Plutonian system to look at the new moon? That is definitely in the plans now. It is not going to be as easy as you might have hoped. If you think about Pluto, it's a very small system. That's why we've, it's been, quote, demoted. I don't really see it that way, by the way. It's a dwarf planet. It's, uh, it's interesting because it's a dwarf planet for the same reason that a bonsai tree is interesting compared to a tree. It's just like a planet in every other way, except it's much, much smaller. And that's, uh, that's what we should appreciate about Pluto. It's unusual in that regard. So New Horizons will be getting there in 2015, and it will have a chance to image little P4. It will have a name by then. I can assure you of that. It will not be very close, though, because uh, it's a small planet and a very fast spacecraft. It took of order a decade to actually get all the way from Earth to Pluto. And as a result, it's only really going to spend a day in the system, and that's going to be a very, very busy day. It's got a lot to look at, and it will actually, as we have checked, not be all that close to P4. So it will get some images. We'll see little craters on it. It'll be that little uh, rock, irregular rock that I mentioned earlier. But uh, as I say, I think what's going to be most interesting about it is not so much the way it looks, but the way it moves and the way it fits into the system now. You've been calling it P4 because that's its placeholder name. That's right. But maybe you should explain how it is that the official names, whenever they're decided, are decided. Who gets to choose? Can you call this uh, moon Mark since you discovered it? Um, uh, my mother would love that, certainly. But uh, no, I'm afraid I can't. We have a uh, well, actually, now that you think about it, the names of Pluto's moons are based on the minions of Hades. And so if you ask my mother, maybe Mark would be an appropriate name for it. <laughs> but uh, the fact is that we go back to Greek mythology, uh, Nyx and Hydra 
And Charon was the boatsman who rowed uh, the dead across the river Styx into the realm of the uh, underworld where, uh, where Hades, uh, or also known as Pluto to the Romans, lived. So we get to pick a name out of a very colorful cast of characters from the very imaginative Greeks who uh, just made up some great stories. And we get to go through that name list, and we're doing that now. And certain names are coming up over and over, and we uh, eventually will get to propose one of those names to the uh, International Astronomical Union, and then they will be able to say yes or no if for some reason there's a conflict. Sometimes they don't like it, for example, if it's also already the name of an asteroid or something. We might have to come back with a second choice after if they reject the first one. Well, Mark Showalter, uh, thanks for coming by. Sure. Can I take that weed whacker now? It'll be nice to get the yard down shorter than my knees. Yeah, sure, of course. Here, here you go. Thanks. Mark Showalter, by the way, is a research scientist at the SETI Institute. You're not even going to ask about the bowling ball? Uh, sorry, Gary, but I guess your lawn's going to look kind of scruffy for a while. Oh, I didn't want the whacker for cutting back garden weeds. No? Well, what for then? I was just going to give the dog a haircut. Oh. Well, you can take the bypass lopper. I guess this will work. And that's it for our show. Thanks to Barbara Vance and Jay Weiler for their help in getting it made. And thanks to the support of the NASA Astrobiology Institute and Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David. Our show is produced at the SETI Institute. Oh, and Molly will be back next week. You know, maybe I'll just take Astro to the pet care center. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more and they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.